Talks podcast. You are with myself, Nathan, and my co-host, Edwin. Our special guest is the founder of Mindology and the psychologist in the region of the Caribbean. Her sports include football, cricket, and hockey. So a warm welcome and actually a warm return to Alexandria Alton. How are you, Alexandria? Welcome back. I'm good. Thank you, Nathan. And thank you both for having me. It's great to have watched the show evolve. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Um, so Ed and I both wanted you back on. Um, I think it's because of, first and foremost, because of the evolution of our podcast. Um, first and foremost, we are, we are using different software. So if we go back and we listen to our first episode with you, the software and overall quality of sound wasn't so great. And I think what inspired me personally to get you back on outside myself and Edwin's conversations was a friend Richard he listened to your episode and he said it was really really good but it was just a sound quality that kind of put him off so <laughs> um, that was a reason why we had to get you back on because somebody like my Richard who's some he's not really too interested in that side of things but the fact that he got something from your episode showed that um yeah it was very very pertinent so yeah it was really we needed to get you back on properly i'm glad and thank you for inviting me again <laughs> good 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 so how have you been um if, even before that so just reintroduce yourself to those who are listening and are familiarizing themselves with you for the very first time Oh, so uh, my name is Alexandra Olsen. I'm a sport and exercise psychologist, and I practice here in Trinidad and Tobago, which is a beautiful twin island in the Caribbean. Uh, so it's beautiful and sunny right now. So uh, I hope you guys are having a, you know, warm inside Christmas because I know it's winter. Ah, uh, to stick in there. But um, yeah, and I uh, I work across all sports. So the sports that we highlighted are sort of the ones that I'm dealing with right now. But uh, sports psychology translates across all sports because every athlete needs um, support and needs to develop their mental skills in order to be the truest form and the best performer that they can. Um, the way that I deliver is what changes from sport to sport. I learn the sport language and um, sort of go from there. But the psychological underpinnings remain the same. Um, and yeah, I have the privilege of working with athletes from grassroots and developmental level to Olympic athletes. I also work with umpires, which is a really unique uh, sort of perspective on the game because you go from athlete to official. Um, it's really un uh, interesting uh, to, to talk to someone and discuss mental performance from that side of things. So that's me in a nutshell. <laughs> so since you, since you were last on, um, has there been a lot that's changed in terms of some of the people you're working with, the sports that you're in? I think I got more heavily involved in football at the elite level. So currently I'm working with our senior women's national football team. Um, so Trinidad and Tobago women are actually attempting to qualify for the FIFA Women's Uh So their qualification process begins in February. Um, so we've been sort of preparing since July of this year and uh, the first set of qualifiers is in February and then again in April. And then, of course, because we're on the CONCACAF, so those would be the qualifiers to get us into the CONCACAF championships. And then once we place within the top six, we guarantee our spot on the aircraft to Australia and New Zealand for the Women's World Cup. And, um, you know, if, if and when we achieve 
the, the, the task at hand, it'll actually be history because no senior women's national team has ever qualified for a Women's World Cup from our country. So um, it's a big feat ahead. So that's something very new to me. Um, mm-hmm. The officials and umpires are also sort of new aspects of, of sports psychology for me. Um, and as the pandemic has sort of evolved, um, you know, the sports psychology that I deliver has changed somewhat. Um, and I, I imagine you guys have heard a number of athletes talk about a lot of various uh, difficulties that they've had across the pandemic with having no training and access to training through trying to train in a COVID environment. Um, so, yeah, a lot of things have changed and progressed, but that's the field. Um, even without the pandemic, you know, it continually evolves and changes with every team and every athlete that I work with. So that's one of the beauties of it. So I'm really, really interested in Trinidad and Tobago. Um, so I have a question. It is largely around, I guess I framed the international versus club um, level. So when you look at club level and seeing a, and having a psychologist, you can see the, the early benefits because A, you're with them on a day-to-day basis and therefore you're developing a relationship, you're getting to know them and when you compare that to internationally so you only really see them at certain intervals so my question to you is how does that work how do you still maintain and develop those relationships knowing that the girls only come together at certain intervals during the course of the year yeah you're absolutely right i mean uh, a lot of the the athletes are away at clubs um, around the world from portugal to greece come back um, so there's not just time differences and so on, but also that massive physical difference uh, and distance between us. Um, but we've been lucky that um, we have had camps, okay. camps uh, that have brought us together. Yeah. Uh, even though some of them weren't necessarily playing camps, we have also had international friendlies um, that we've participated in. Because unfortunately, the team hadn't come together for the last two and a bit years. Oh, wow. So um, it was ground zero when we started really in July. Um, and there were a lot of senior players, um, older players who did come back and, and did return to the national team and their experience and their wealth of knowledge, of course, helps um, a lot of the younger players as well. But, um, you know, we're really creating a new team um, with new coaches, new staff and everything. Um, it is challenging, but technology provides um, sort of great opportunity to keep in touch. We use WhatsApp, we use video calling. I have regular check-ins with the athletes one-to-one and sort of group sessions online. Um, and then the camps are very concentrated um, sort of experiences of sports psychology. And the coaches, thankfully, are very supportive of the role that I play within the squad. So they very much include sports psychology in the daily activities. So they'll have anywhere between eight and 10 sports psychology sessions in any one camp okay. um, as, a, as a group. And then, of course, we have the individual sessions um, all throughout, you know, casual conversations at the breakfast table or, you know, on the training field and that sort of stuff. So it, it's about the quality of the, the sessions and the, the, the discussions that you have versus the quantity, because you could have hundreds of sports psychology sessions and they still don't retain the information. So yeah. you're getting them getting them to think about it in the best way possible and then sending little prompts. So, you know, on WhatsApp, I use WhatsApp and I send out a sort of a psychometric measure and I say, can you please complete this and fill it back and send it back to me via email or WhatsApp or whatever. And 
you know, it gives me a good idea of where they are, and it's a touch point. So you just create those touch points as you go. Um, but it is it is challenging because um, you know you're bringing a team together for maybe five or six times a year, and yeah. Not playing the rest with with other teammates, so uh, it is a challenge. You kind of mentioned that you work with a with officials now. What what is the difference between working with officials and working with athletes in terms of some of the stuff that they might um, want to get from you? I try to approach it as, well, I do approach it as it's still performance. Um, it's just a different type of performance. So athletes are, of course, performing to play well and win. Um, officials are performing to make the best decisions and the most impartial decisions possible. Um, and for officials, it's a lot about emotional regulation and self-management because officials don't have the luxury of flying off the handle when a team of athletes come at them and start yelling that they made the wrong decision and whatnot. And of course, we have technology um, available to, to assist the officials. But, you know, in sports like cricket and, and hockey, the technology can actually, um, you know, work against you in a way. And I, I'll explain what I mean by that. So, for example, in hockey, you have a, a, an equivalent of VAR um, yeah. where you can, so a team can request it. And each team in any one international match has two, two sort of reviews that they can request. If the review and the analysis finds that the umpire's decision was wrong, they get that review back. And every time they ask for review, every time um, the umpire is wrong, they get it back. So they can keep calling until they eventually, well, umpire gets something wrong. But of course, that can always create a snowball effect for the umpire because it's like they make one wrong decision and then they're told there was a wrong decision and the team questions and questions and questions and they keep making the wrong decision. So you have to, it's all about that emotional regulation and that regulation of self and that decision-making process and how to control your confidence and your, your, your sport confidence in those moments when, and be resilient against those things. For cricket umpires, it um, creates what they call errors against you. And, uh, you know, you can only get X amount of errors against you before you're then either demoted or, you know, it, your errors are carried throughout the year and, and you're sort of analyzed and it can affect, I think, even your salary level and so on. So there are consequences to the technology for umpires and officials. And I think it's a very, very um, sort of unique experience of sport because it, at the end of the day, somebody or some team are going to hate you for the decisions that you made. So... It's a very, very difficult situation to be in. So it's, it's, uh, it takes a truly resilient individual to, to, to become an international official, I think. Yeah, that's really interesting. So it kind of, saw, it sounds like Hawkeye in, in tennis. Yeah. It's quite similar to um, yeah, Hawkeye. So my question to you is, what characteristics do you think an elite umpire or referee should have um, from your expert, uh, yeah, from coming from your expert background? Yeah, um, just a couple off the top of my head, because obviously they need to have all, but um, resilience, as I mentioned. Yeah. Um, you know, sort of strong sources of confidence. So when one source of confidence is kind of cut off or, you know, um, diminished, they have other sources that they can draw upon to kind of keep them going. Um, high self-efficacy. Um, okay. We often tie self-efficacy and confidence together, but they're very different things. Self-efficacy yeah. is your your belief in your ability to complete a task effectively. So um, they need to have that high self-efficacy. And I think as well, 
you know, that emotional intelligence is required as an umpire to be able to recognize and acknowledge your emotions, how it affects your decisions and how it affects, you know, the athletes that you're interacting with because body language plays a huge role. So you can often tell when an umpire is peeved or when a football referee is, is irritated by, you know, the players coming at them in their face. So I think sort of those sort of skills are really, really important. And then obviously the, the developmental skills that we work on as well, like self-talk, goal setting, all that sort of stuff. So, yeah. What 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 are the type of things that they normally say to you when let's say they've had a bad a bad match officiating? Um, what what is, what's the most common things that are said to you, and and what would you say in those situations? Distraction is one. Um, I think sometimes uh, we're human beings, and our attentional control sometimes. You know, if we go into a match with something on our mind, or you know, a personal issue, or even just a bit of you know, like, uh, um, you know, I haven't officiated a match in two years because sport has been sort of cancelled because of COVID and it's my first match back. Um, I think distraction is one that needs to be, um, you know, it is often discussed. And attentional control and your attentional resources are, are quite finite, really. Um, yeah. you know, we like to believe that we can multitask or whatever, but actually multitasking takes away from our attentional resources. And we're not really able to do it as as you know we, we so believe we can um and i think distraction and, and staying focused sustained focus is, so for example with a cricket umpire sometimes a test series goes on for the full five days and you know sustained attention for hours in the hot sun um you know sometimes the weather is very dry and it's, it's difficult you know, there are a lot of physical attributes that may contribute to that distraction uh, so that's one that sometimes happens. And um, another one sometimes is, is that self-talk, that negative self-talk that comes into play. So when a poor decision is made, they're not able to quickly bounce off the decision and move on to, to the next one that needs to be made. And unfortunately, in officiating, you don't have time to dwell because the game continues on, even when you're sort of still sitting on the mistake that just happened. So um, those sorts of things uh, do creep up. And, and we go back to the basic skills, the basic skills of self-talk, the basics of resilience, you know, your relationship with making mistakes. Uh, that's really important to address very early on how people, you know, relate with mistakes. What do you feel when you make a mistake and why do you feel that way? You know, and, you know, we, we're quick to beat up on ourselves when we make mistakes, but really it's it's just a matter of, how quickly can we move past the mistake, deal with it, and then process it maybe after? So those are some of the things uh, generally. There are a lot of things that are going through my mind at the moment, so I'm going to try and break it down. So one of the things that I've learned from, I guess, since this podcast started is that a lot of elite athletes, one of the things that they do is they kind of create an environment in their minds, but equally maybe on the training ground. So when they are actually on that field or on that track, they already have that they really have that environment created in them and therefore they can just perform and for me i think of so for those who who know football i think of some of these hostile stadiums like um, anfield probably in the uk you've got celtic and rangers as well and maybe galatasaray in turkey so i'm just thinking of maybe how would you prepare a referee 
to create an environment where they're going to have to deal with a high level of hostility in those type of environments. Because when I look at, say, a place like Turkey, those fans are just, they're almost, they're like, and they're like British fans, but probably three times more hostile because they start throwing flares. <laughs> they throw flares. They create like a firework display. <laughs> and when you're having to deal with that sort of level, plus you've got millions watching you, how do you recreate that for a referee? Uh, yeah, it's it's certainly challenging. I mean, similarly with like say Pakistan versus India. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I will say though that it takes a particular type of individual to okay. make it as an official for the first. So developmental officials, I will never throw into a situation like that. But. Yeah. The official ended up in a situation like that because they have demonstrated what it takes to make it to the international level yeah. and has sustained that that skill set. Yeah, yeah. Um, creating that sort of safe little bubble or headspace for them prior to that that sort of high intensity match, as it were. Yeah, yeah. Would come into play when we talk about things like your pre-competition routines. Okay. Um, so we try to create that routine. You can create it from the night before, the day before, the day of, and you identify that schedule of events. And you you list it out, you write it out at, you know, 7 a.m. I'm going to get up, at 8 a.m. I'm having breakfast, 10 a.m. I'm doing meditation, 12 a.m. 12 p.m. lunch, whatever it might be. And being very strict and diligent with that routine, um, and, and this comes organically to, to many elite athletes and performers who like officials, but uh, you know some might need to write it out and, and keep themselves to adhere to it. And then a lot of the times what really helps with creating that environment preparation is imagery. So you create an, an imagery script, and the beauty of it is that the internet has audio clips of loads of matches gone by. So okay. You begin the imagery practice, and you put the the official in a uh, a false environment, as it were. So you blast the music or whatever, and and we build up to that because mm. there are other focus and attentional exercises that we do. Like you place a ball on a table, and you just focus on the ball for five minutes, okay? And you do the color, the shape, the texture, whatever. Then you put the TV on slightly loud. And then you try and do it again. And you use a keyword. So you're developing an attentional keyword that triggers you to focus and stay in that zone. And then you, wow. you, you keep slowly but surely raising the volume of the television or the song that you're listening to, whatever it is, until it's blasting and it's so loud, but you're still able to draw your attention back to the ball using that keyword. And then so when you're put in that environment and you use the keyword, you know what it means. Your brain like shortcuts, they're called our heuristics. Um, and it's really important that we understand what our shortcuts are and then ensure that our shortcuts are the most productive towards our performances. Because many of us have shortcuts that are really trash <laughs> and, and cause us to make poor decisions. Yeah. When a poor decision is made, we, we aren't able to recover from it because our heuristic is just beat yourself up, beat yourself up. So you have to change those shortcuts. The brain, everybody's fascinated, fascinated by the brain, but it's really lazy. <laughs> you know, it, it likes to go from A to B in the shortest way possible. It's an amazing processor, but it is a, a, a machine that likes shortcuts. So it's important to create positive shortcuts for those officials and 
you know, simulate that environment before they get into it. Okay. My next question is going to be um, around mental toughness. So this could probably work for officials and and um, players of any sport. So let's say you're in a situation where you you you're in a team sport and you play for a team and you get to finals and you keep on losing in finals. What would you... Nathan knows why I'm asking this question. <laughs> <laughs> it's a personal question. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, in losing, what, what are the type of things you would say to them to, to strengthen, strengthen their mental toughness so when in those positions again, it doesn't affect them? I will say, uh, first, Ed, mm. that I absolutely... Mm don't avoid using the word mental toughness. I think it's such a trigger mm. phrase for me. Um, solely okay. because if you're not mentally tough, it suggests that you're mentally weak. And I don't like mm. that. Um, okay. So I like to consider it as uh, resilience and emotional agility. Um, yeah. Emotional agility and sort of emotional intelligence sort of marry. They are sort of the ability to adapt, you know, mentally, physically and emotionally to situations that you find yourself in. And I think that skill of adaptability is very, very underrated um, because we are placed in situations both positive and negative consistently throughout life. Uh, you know, sport is just a metaphor for life, which is incredible. Mm. Um, and the ability to adapt when things go wrong um, is crucial to changing the outcome of that situation uh, or sometimes accepting the outcome of that situation and learning from it and moving on um you know sometimes you just can't stop a losing streak for whatever reason it's just it happens sometimes you know but in a team environment there are a lot of dynamics that feed into that so it's it's about the team's resilience and emotional agility the team's ability to adapt the team chemistry when things go wrong because quite often when things go wrong is when everybody sort of splits up it's when things go right everybody's like yeah this is my teammate and everybody's happy and fine it's when the time gets tough you see the true colors of people and, and how they deal with that disappointment and making mistakes and how they recover from that one poor performance going into the next one are they fearful of making mistakes again to ruin or, or you know possibly lose that that next match and you know so they hesitate or they they take two extra seconds to make a consideration and then the that time counts and so if everybody's doing that on the field it adds up and that's the um that's the difficulty with team sports with individual athletes it's not necessarily easier but you can reflect and identify with what's going on and the individual is is usually responsible for for it or or, or you know the the individual in a situation or the coach and the way they they interact and you can kind of maneuver the situation but team dynamic is very very unique because you're dealing with maybe 11 different personalities or 22 different personalities um so it, it's definitely a tough as a sports psychologist to help athletes come out of that funk and that losing streak um i like to sort of um change the way we think about the loss so we lean into it we're disappointed you know nobody likes losing it sucks whatever but the session that we have, what we call it a, a competition debrief, um, you know, we would reframe the way we see the loss and the next opportunity to play. Is it going to be a comeback or is it just going to be a sympathy match? Or are we going to make it, you know, is it the same opponent? Is it a different opponent? How are we going about what did we do well in that one that we can do well in this one? What didn't go so well and how can we approve it in the next match? And we, 
we do what's called a reflective practice on the on the game and and kind of identify but yeah there's no one size fits all for any team sport for losing and recovering from loss but it's certainly um a start is to reflect on the loss so i want to talk about the caribbean the region of the caribbean now you briefly mentioned on the last podcast about different cultural barriers or just different cultural factors so for the Caribbean, what would you say are some of the barriers um, in terms of um, ensuring that your job is done effectively? Hmm, there's quite a few. <laughs> um, I think so. The the barriers that sort of stop me from being effective sometimes. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I would say certainly the under education of what we as sports psychologists do. I think. Um, you know, there are a number of athletes that are very well informed. And I think on the national level, um, we've done a good job at making it available and out there and putting it out there for the national elite athletes. But I think for a lot of grassroots athletes, there's still a, a misunderstanding of what, what sports psychologists do or when we come in to help. Um, and I think that stigma around mental health. And, and if you speak to a psychologist or of any kind or a practitioner of any kind, something's wrong with you. I think that's sort of a big one that we still have a lot of, uh, you know, way to go with respect to overcoming it. And I think um, and I don't mean to trample on toes here when I say this, but I think the second hindrance is definitely coaches, um, coaches not understanding what we do, the value of what we do and how we do it. Um, I think that. Many coaches um, sort of look at us initially and think they're coming to tell me how to do my job as a coach or they're coming here to take over and tell the athletes I'm being a bad coach. And I think um, sometimes coaches' ego can get in the way of allowing their athletes to get the help that they need. Um, so it's just a matter of how we go about introducing ourselves into the environment and, you know, making the coach feel comfortable first before we sort of, you know, come in to, to play our part but I think those are probably the, the main two that I would think of right now okay uh, my next question is kind of around um, let's say you are an athlete has been put forward to you but they 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 don't know whether to trust you or not um, and their reasons for not knowing whether to trust you is to do with like they they just feel nobody understands them What's the type of thing that you would do to to help them in that situation? So to gain their trust? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's the crucial element to my practice generally, because if athletes don't trust you, they're never going to sort of really let you in to understand how they perform, how they think while they're performing. Um, you know, simply allowing athletes a free space uh, to feel comfortable and reassure them that what they say is not going to go back to their coaches or their parents if they're a junior athlete because that's a big thing for a lot of junior athletes is that you know my parents going to find out the things that I say especially if they have sort of struggles with familial relationships at home and that sort of stuff um, so it's just a matter of creating that safe space I think that being a female practitioner works in my favor because often women are you know uh viewed as sort of gentler or softer touch um so i think definitely i, I play on that uh softness to sort of 
allow the space to be comfortable. Um, yeah, I play a lot of games as well. So I don't just sit and talk and expect them to talk. If I realize that an athlete is not very communicative because they're just not comfortable or they just don't know how, sometimes people just don't know how to express themselves. We use activities um, to demonstrate um, sort of the, the, the theory I might be trying to to you know, transfer at that point in time, whether it's okay, this is setting goals and the value of setting goals, or this is how self-talk affects us, or, you know, this is how our confidence affects how we perform, or, you know, our intentions going into something. And I might use, you know, balls and cups and rackets and, you know, and then I might, I come in and I'm very immersive. So I come into their environment as well. And that's really important that they see you in their environment and they see you trying to learn what they're doing and then you also speak their language so it's very very important for me to be taught by the athlete so I encourage athletes to sort of tell me um so tell me what does x y and z mean like if they're explaining something within their sport I'll say okay can you explain that to me what does that mean what does this play look like um who's in you know who are you passing to the, the ball to when you're doing x y and z so I get them to to become empowered to teach me so I'm not the expert in the room they are um, I'm just simply guiding them to the best way to develop that performer that ultimate athletic performer inside so one of my interests in psych sports psychology is largely around long-term injuries and also persistent niggling injuries because when I look at an individual that is or has a start-stop, uh, yeah, almost have a yeah, they almost are starting and stopping in their career due to persistent niggling injuries. I do wonder how that has an impact on their their mindset and moving forward. So for myself, it's something that I really would like to understand a bit better. So I guess it could be either or dealing, have you dealt with an individual that has had either, you know, a persistent niggling injury, so they're starting and stopping, or a long-term injury? And what are some of the early, uh, I guess, what are some of the early methods that you I guess implement to ensure that they overcome their trauma yeah trauma is maybe the right word yeah trauma um no I mean injury is something that we sort of have to accept as a part of sport athletes get injured this is this is a reality because we're repeating the same motions over and over and training ourselves to very you know, max limits and um, oftentimes. So I have athletes who are currently at clubs in Mexico and one season finishes and another starts. They don't necessarily have more than about two weeks break, which, you know, is, yeah. is takes its toll on the physical body. And, um, you know, I think what's really important is just the presence of that sports psychologist from the get-go. Um, you know, I did research mm. into long-term injury in professional footballers in England. Well, in the UK, I should say. So I surveyed over 100 um, uh, professional footballers from Premiership, Championship, League One, League Two, men and women. And, um, you know, a lot of our research has been published since. Um, and we took it from a holistic perspective. And a lot of the clubs didn't have on-staff sports psychologists to support the athletes. And a lot of the athletes stated that one thing they really wanted um, 
throughout their rehabilitation process was just someone to talk to and someone who would understand. Uh, because oftentimes when an athlete is injured, they sort of get tossed aside um, because they're sort of a liability at this point. They're not a value to the team. They're not adding to the team. So uh, we don't really have time for them because coaches have got to focus on the athletes that are healthy and able to train and whatnot. So I think what's really important for those athletes is that they are able to have that support there for them. They have someone to talk to. And I think as well, something that we fail to realize is that, especially at an elite level, these athletes make the sport and what they do their life. So when that is taken away from them via injury, there is a sense of a loss of identity. I don't know who I am if I'm not playing football. I don't know who I am if I'm not playing tennis. I don't know who, if, I, you know, if I'm not playing cricket. Um, and so I think that's really important. And this is why it's important to get sports psychology in from the developmental stage. It's creating identities that's broader than just I am the footballer, I am the cricketer. But, you know, uh, who are you and are you developing your skill set beyond that? And I think as well, um, especially with recurring injuries, so not necessarily long, well, long term as well, of course, but with recurring injuries, there's always fear of re-injury as well. Um, so you know, if someone's coming out of an ACL tear, for example, which is a, almost a year-long recovery process, uh, nine months if you're lucky, yeah. you know, um, there's a huge fear of re-injury there. I have athletes who have had five ACL repairs between both knees, and it's just, wow. it's insane. Wow, wow, and, wow, you know, wow. They're coming back to football, for example, and training. And they're, they're telling me this and they you have to create um, a mental identity that is prepared to test the limits of their their injuries and their injury repairs and their rehabilitation. I have athletes who are coming off um, hamstring tears and wouldn't go maximum capacity in sprints because they were fearful of, of tearing it again. And we have to understand that that fear is there. So, yeah, physio clearance, doctor clearance is great. But an athlete will still hesitate. And with that hesitation and that fear increases that risk of re-injury as well, because then they're going to do motions that stunt them or stop them suddenly. Or, you know, they jerk in a certain way or they turn and twist in a certain way. And, um, you know, it's it's really important for us to, to work on that and that return to play process. But also they have that support throughout. And every athlete's going to need something different. So some athletes might be, right, I'm injured, but I'm determined to get back out on the field. I'm committed to my rehabilitation. Let's go. And they, you know, they keep it and they see it as part of the training process and whatnot. And then there's some athletes who give up and they feel hopeless and they just don't know what to do. So different athletes require different things and will have different demands for what they need in that sense of support. But I think the presence of that sports psychologist is what's most important. So I'm going to create a scenario for you. So let's say there is a, let's say, let's use a football as an example there's a footballer mm -hmm. he tends to have relationship issues with his teammates coaches managers what are the type of things that you would say to someone like that to to help basically change their mindset and how they approach their relationships with with people uh, yeah i mean everyone develops relationships differently um and what some might consider this is their boundary others might push it a little further and whatever and how we relate with others um differs from person to person so i might sort of and this is why it's important to work um you know as a, a supporting pillar <clears throat> amongst the other pillars rather than sports psychology acts in a silo 
I need to be embedded and part of that sports team. I need to have a good relationship with the manager, with the physio, with the coach, with the, you know, the nutritionist, with the SNC coach, because all that information feeds into helping my role with the athletes and understanding holistically what they do. And so they might have a better relationship with the SNC coach, but they don't have a good relationship with the manager. They don't have a good relationship with the technical coach. So I might talk to the SNC coach and see what their approach is like, or observe an SNC session and see how they relate to the athlete. And then I might observe a session with the coach and see how they relate with the athlete and maybe try to identify the differences. And then, of course, having that individual conversation with the athlete is really important as well, because at the end of the day, they're the holder of all the answers. Um, so, mm. you know, I might prompt them to, you know, tell me, you know, which relation uh, amongst the team do, do they or him or her find um you know most comforting or they get the most value out of and why and how do they think they're progressing as a performer and why and what are some of the obstacles that are in their way and you know how they get along with their teammates and you know sometimes people aren't even aware of the the way they're relating to other people sometimes people think jokes are funny and others might take offense to it some people might think that they're being aggressive and others might think oh they're not stern enough you know and someone might get you know, an energy boost if someone goes rah at them and, and yells and others might just go totally internal and, and break down. So this, again, the team environment is a unique ecosystem um, and it is so delicate that, you know, even us as sports like sometimes can't fix all the problems in a team mm. um, and sometimes they have to work themselves out organically. But um, these are some of the ways that we'll go about with team culture and diversity and differing personalities, differing backgrounds, you know, the way that someone was raised in a background, a family background might come from a household where everybody yells or might come from a household where nobody yells. And so the two meeting, we have to, you know, we have to find a way to marry everyone's background and experience of life to work in unison and in, in the best way possible. And, you know, that team culture, there's not enough emphasis placed on it, certainly. Um, you know, sometimes we just put them together and say, let's let it happen. But we have to actively work on it, set values, set responsibilities, set goals as a team and, and work towards that together. So, With regards to the Caribbean, so previously you mentioned that I think yeah, so you said that there are approximately eight to ten psychologists in the in the region. So I can think of many advantages of that, but do you are there any disadvantages that there are so little or so few psychologists in the in a region? And can you just share what some of the disadvantages are? Uh, yeah, huge disadvantages because then um, you know we're not able to get to everybody. Um, we're not able to educate everyone, uh, you know, we, we're only able to hit a sort of very niche population or you know, the population of where we're at. And actually, I think most of the sports psychologists are densely concentrated here in Trinidad and Tobago, which is great. That means okay. Trinidad and Tobago sport will flourish and hopefully we produce more sports psychologists because the field is, is thriving a bit. But um you know, in bigger islands like Jamaica, for example, whose population is bigger, um, or even the smaller islands like St. Vincent and the Grenadines, Grenada, you know, where you don't have access to these services, it, you're, you're doing a great disadvantage to the athletes because at the end of the day, the only people who suffer from not having access to it are the athletes themselves, you know, and then they they don't get to perform at their best. They don't get um, every 
you know, opportunity that they deserve to develop them holistically and push them to become the best performers. And yeah, we have the one-off who will become great and win an Olympic medal or win a world championship medal or whatnot, but it's not sustainable. It doesn't then create and generate a culture of high-performing athletes. Instead, it's just a, a hope and a whim that we have raw talent that can take them somewhere or they've, you know, develop that mindset on their own without that support and guidance. So, you know, while it's okay, great, we can pioneer the field and create a really wonderful foundation and hope for the best and, you know, everything that is sort of one of the major disadvantages as well. So this is my last question. So it's around lack of motivation. So let's say someone is lacking motivation due to events going on in their personal life. What are the type of things that you would say to them to to get past that and to find that motivation again? You know, motivational theory is very complicated. Um, motivation sort of exists on this mass spectrum from extremely extrinsic, which is it means it's derived from what's on the outside, money, rewards, medals, to completely intrinsic, which means it comes from inside. Um, you'd find that elite athletes largely reside within the intrinsic motivation and extrinsic plays a role. And that's solely because with elite athleticism, it's a big sacrifice because Olympics is once every four years. It's going to take a lot of intrinsic motivation to sustain a four-year cycle because just saying, I want to win an Olympic medal isn't going to be good enough. So there's something else that um, that exists there. And I think it's about finding that source of motivation that drives them at that point in time. And I think a major... Um, player in motivational theory is 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 um sort of goal setting and our sort of goal orientations um what we call our goal orientations are basically the mindset and the behaviors that we apply to achieving our goals so whether it's performance or it's mastery um and then you have approach and avoidance goals approach goals are i want to train and be the best or um you know i want to uh, train and perform and and I want to hit a PB in the gym and avoidance goals would just be like um, I don't want to do worse than I did in the last set or I don't want to lift any less than I did in the last training session so um, by setting those approach goals we're going towards success when you set avoidance goals you're sort of running away from failure or trying to avoid failure so I think that goal setting as well is really, really important. Identifying at that point in time, what does that athlete want? What Do they need a break? Sometimes a lack of motivation is coming because there's there's a burnout and we're just we're tired, we're fatigued, we're just kind of over it a little bit and we need a rest. And so sometimes that, that physical or mental break is called upon. And then sometimes it's just about identifying what are our motivators at that point in time because they change. They continue and gradually change, so... So I've got two more questions. Um, the first one is, well, I've just forgotten it. So I'll go to my last question, <laughs> but I'm going to get the other question back. I know I'm going to get it back. So the last question is, um, is an elite mindset innate, developed, or a bit of both? Nathan, testing me here. Um... <laughs> I would say that there is probably a bit of both. You know, it's always the um, nature or nurture argument. Um, yeah. I would say that there are certain personalities that are predisposed to developing skills okay. a bit more um, or in a more productive way. Um, 
And there are certain personality traits that predispose individuals to needing more mental skills to draw upon sort of thing. So I think it's definitely a bit of both. Um, I don't think you could ever peg it on one. There's always, in psychology, you can never say it's solely DNA or it's solely because we taught them how to do it. I think it's definitely a marry of the two. Um, You know, there are probably a lot of practitioners who might disagree with me, but that's my sort of personal opinion on it. Mm. I did say I was going to get it back. You see, it's all that self-talk that I've been learning from all these athletes and psychologists on there. I knew that question was going to come back. I wouldn't have forgotten it. It wouldn't have left. Uh, It's back. Um, So, yeah, the question is... So, I'm going to leave it on... I want to leave this question. Last question. It's on something practical so this is inspired from myself so one thing with me when i used to miss a when i used to miss one chance in football it used to demoralize me so whether i'm in front of the goal whether it's a difficult shot whether it's an easy shot regardless it's a standard same response i am it, it just does something to me then for the next 10 15 minutes i'm all over the place my head is still thinking about that shot that was when i was younger so i guess my question to you is if there is an individual it, it doesn't matter about age but right now listening and they are somebody that struggles whenever they miss a sitter wherever they miss a chance and it could be any sport and what can they do practic- practically um in game where they can move on is there an actual specific method that you could i guess share with them um just one practical method um (laughs) i would have to say probably one of the places to start would be addressing why they feel that way when they make that mistake um is it a fear of failure? Is it a not meeting your expectations? Um, is it perfectionism okay. and perfectionistic tendencies that are kicking in there? Um, okay. Is it your expectations of self in any training setting or whatever? Are you setting realistic expectations? I think a lot of athletes go in thinking that I can't make mistakes, but the reality is that mistakes happen everywhere, all around the world. Elite athletes make mistakes. Elite performers make mistakes. Um but it's our relationship with those mistakes and how we recover from it that certainly um, either aids or hampers our sort of performances. And I think, you know, the foundational trait is always, it's always going to come back to self-talk. Whose voice are you hearing in your head when you make that mistake? Is it a parent? Is it a coach? Is it your own voice? Um, what is it saying? Why is it saying it? Is it true? Um, you know, when you miss, is it that, I'm the worst performer ever. I'm never going to make it. Is that is that your reality or is that we have to challenge those thoughts? And uh, we have a, a cognitive bias that, towards negativity. We have to understand that it's, it's human design. Um, you know, it was our evolutionary advantage uh, for survival. If we were negative and sort of alert and focused on what's the next predator that might be around the corner, what's the next, how am I going to get food um, you know, when we're, we're talking about caveman days here, um, that evolutionary yeah. um, advantage helped us survive through those times. Of course, modern life has evolved and, and our, actually our mind hasn't caught up as quickly. Modern life has created comfort, comfort and technology and cars and homes and, you know, sport and activity. And, and so we don't have to worry about predators and survival anymore. But that inherent trait kicks in constantly. And that self-talk is habitual. 
and we have to um, practice positive self-talk. And it's not going from making a mistake and saying I'm the worst athlete to making a mistake and saying I'm the best athlete. That jump is too is too great. We often think and, and you know, positive psychology has been exaggerated on Instagram and social media to this. I'm the best. I'm going to be the best. I can achieve all the dreams I hope for. And that's not real. It's not human nature. You know, we have to go from that negative to more neutral language and then build up to that positive language. So instead of saying I made a mistake, I'm the worst footballer ever. I made a mistake um, and I'll try again next time to see if I can do it better. I'll make a mistake. I made a mistake, but my team is still going forward. So I need to to pull up and, and just keep going kind of thing. And then go to I made I made a mistake, but I'm I'm good at kick. So I know I, I'm good at shooting. So I know that the next one I'll get it. And we build up to that language. And, and so that way it becomes more realistic than just saying I'm the worst. I'm the best, you know. So it's it starts with that self-talk and that relationship with your mistake. So. Do you know what? <laughs> so I don't know even if it's a question or a final thought. So you have hit the nail on the head. So I was list- I can't remember who I was listening to. It was probably Joe Rogan, Joe Rogan podcast. He had somebody on and they spoke very similarly around what you said about what we were like before compared to now. I think actually, yeah, the, it was Jewel. I don't know anything about her, but she spoke about this and it was so pertinent because what she was mentioning is that we've become so comfortable in this society that we've almost lost that kind of instinct now. So there are certain things now where we, uh, when we come against challenges, we are not best mentally placed to deal with them in comparison to where before when we was I guess in the caveman days and we there was so much danger around and we was always we was always in constant survival mode those instincts were just there intuitively where in comparison now we're so we're so much in comfort that we've we've almost lost some of some of those survival instincts and I think yeah that really hit me when you when you mentioned that and yeah I may share something with you off the recording I I don't think I'm gonna say I don't think I'm comfortable to say it because it might be controversial and I'm not here to share controversy I'm just here to just be standard so yeah we'll leave it at that um (laughs) Alexandria how can people get in contact with you Uh, they can find me on instagram at mindology tt um you can find me on my website there's a contact form www.mindologytt.com um or you can uh harass nathan nathan and edwin for my contact details um via their podcast just drop them a dm <laughs> and um yeah that's a nice plug <laughs> that's, how you, uh, that's how you can find me so yeah please feel free to reach out if you have a question if you want to you know ask something uh you know uh, access my resource it's it's available to any and everyone who's listening so yes yeah, absolutely brilliant. Another action packed podcast. Ed, it's much better now. Yeah, it's much, much yeah, better. Let's, let's, let's hope the sound is 10 times better than when people heard it the last time. Uh, yeah, uh, it's been a short time, but we've come a long way. Honestly, we've been we've been learning. Honestly, we've been learning, and um. Yeah, it's been great. The The evolution has been great and so much more to come. But yeah, guys, if you are a regular listener, continue to share 
like if you are a new listener welcome aboard until next time guys stay healthy stay blessed peace